Chapter 27, Time Fasting. The quote for this chapter comes from Thomas Traherne. As nothing is more easy than to think, so nothing is more difficult than to think well. The easiness of thinking we received from God, the difficulty of thinking well proceeded from ourselves. While waiting for my wife to return from her massage appointment, I stand outside the building making phone calls. The day is October 9, 2006, and the burning sensation from the original injury is at its most intense since it began almost two years ago. Like most days, today feels as if I have the worst sunburn ever into which shard-like pieces of gravel are being ground into my skin. Along with the sensations of pain, I also feel the grumble of thought and emotion that attend them. Doing my best to endure the sensation, and until now unable to find a remedy for it, I constantly feel irritable, impatient, and moody, needing to move my body as often as possible. To deal with this, I would often attempt to distract myself, or if that didn't work, I would just take another nap. This day there's no place to lie down so I mentally run through the names of people I could call from my cell phone under the guise of conducting business in order to distract myself from the pain. By accident, I select the wrong number on my speed dialer and end up reaching the woman who first introduced me to coaching. When we realize my mistake, she asks how I am, to which I inundate her with a colorful but graphic description of my current situation, chosen for its ability to convey both the severity of my discomfort and displeasure. She responds simply by suggesting I visit a holistic health professional she knew that could support what my body was going through. Motivated to be free of the pain at any cost, I take the number and make an appointment for the coming Saturday. On my way there, I continue to have a kind of arrogance about my physical health and expect my evaluation will be positive, despite the intensity with which my body has been on fire. How I could think this, considering the ordeal I'm going through, eludes me. So, when the holistic health practitioner reveals to me what my body is actually telling her, I am completely blown away. From her accounting, my body sounds like the aftermath of a high-speed train wreck complete with twisted metal, broken bodies, and smoking debris. Once again, despite her attempts to tell me all will be fine, I implode in the same emotional way that I did when evaluated for my certification as a coach. Shocked and bewildered, I returned to my car for the drive home, and feeling overwhelmed at the import of her evaluation, I complained out loud to the universe for having misled me for so long. Here, I had dedicated my entire life to being healthy, and this was my reward. Next, a familiar sense of being wrong, unsafe, and hopeless swells inside, leading me to think, how is it that I can ever be healthy when all my life I have sought it, and yet this is where my wellness lies? Distraught, I pull my car to the side of the road and cry out to the universe, why is this happening to me and how can it be true? Immediately out of the silence comes an answer that I'd never considered before. The problems that you perceive in the world do not exist out there. They exist in your mental, emotional, and physical bodies in the form of the very diseases now present. And until you correct their expression within, there is no way for the world to reflect differently without.
Instantly, a sense of peace grows in the face of the truth received. I now understand quite intimately the expression that the world is as we are, because never before had I grasped the impact that my health had on my reality, or how important it was for me to actually be healthy. Wanting to understand this better, I consider what it means. Am I responsible for the ill health of the members of our societies, the state of our environment, the war in Iraq, and our global economy? I had always thought those were other people's problems, and even if they weren't, what could I do about any of it? I was just one person sitting in his car complaining to the universe. Then I wondered, could it be that the meaning, love or fear, I made of those things was mine alone to contribute? Wasn't I the only one that I knew for certain was making meaning in my world? Honestly, I could only answer in the affirmative because I never knew what others were actually thinking or feeling. I only ever knew my own experience. Okay, so what if my comfort, discomfort, complaining and explaining, basically all of it, was nothing other than an indication of the degree of acceptance I was practicing? Does this mean that the various forms of fear I experience on the inside are connected to everything that seems fearful on the outside? Yes, that's it exactly. For this very reason, every dis-ease or lack of ease that I experience in here is simultaneously externalized out there for me to recognize. The thing is, I moved to fear, doubt, guilt, and remorse regarding the problems in the world because those energies in motion are already moving inside of me. If fear were not already inside of me, I would have no basis for interpreting its form outside. But I do, because the outside is a mirror of the inside. In fact, they are actually the same image that only appear different depending upon point of view. It's either interior or exterior. So, here's the bottom line. Whatever is living in the mental, emotional, and physical bodies of the individual is also living in the body of society and also becomes manifest in the corporate body. But the process doesn't stop there. It continues to express itself in each state, nation, and continent of our planet. This had to be the answer, and it made sense on so many different levels. Why else would we see intentions in others unless those same intentions were currently living in us as well? Or why do we like certain people? Because in some way, we are like them. Look at it this way. If I'm supplying all the meaning to everything, where does the meaning of pollution, death, poverty, violence, joy, love, abundance, and belonging come from? Who is making the meaning for all of that? The only answer is that the things I desire and those I do not both come from the same place, which is me. I alone am responsible for the meaning I've made on the basis of my ability to notice, acknowledge, and accept. No one does this for me, and for the same reason, no one can change what I don't like about my world either. I have to do it for myself, in myself first, before its reflection may be noticed elsewhere. Now I understood my responsibility for all that seemed distorted in my world was on the basis of how I felt about it. It was not that I needed to run around like a chicken with its head cut off to address the ills of the world. That would not be practical for there was nowhere to run and no need because those ills perceived 
already lived in me in some as yet unknown way. My perception of the world that came to me moment to moment was my personal mirror, whose reflections informed me about what was living in me that only I could address. It was never the responsibility of others. It was mine to attend, just as it fell to others to attend to what they found in their world was theirs. All we could ever do beyond serving the need of the person, places, and things in each moment was to notice, acknowledge, and accept everything, until doing so revealed what was true to think, feel, and do that was free from fear. Finally, I was able to put it all together. All of it was starting to make perfect sense. Whatever we experience on the level of our mind, emotion, or body is a source of nourishment that, if appropriate to the indigenous nature of the individual, will be properly digested, assimilated, and eliminated in support of that life. Conversely, when inappropriate substances are consumed, they will be improperly digested, assimilated, and eliminated to become accumulated as toxins that later distort, diminish, and limit the life they were supposed to nourish. This is why foods that are unsuitable for our physical body will create disease, even though at first they taste good. The same is true of every thought we think. They also are a source of nourishment and a type of food for our mental body that when improperly digested, assimilated, and eliminated, become toxic for us in the form of unexamined concepts, beliefs, and opinions. Over time, their accumulation confuse and misdirect us, even though at first they may have made sense. Likewise, every emotion, every energy in motion, is a food that, when not properly digested, assimilated, or eliminated, becomes a toxin to that emotional body. This is the true nature of our fear and all its symptoms, as anxiety, impatience, restlessness, anger, rage, jealousy, and pride, in all cases. We know whether what we have consumed has served us by how we feel moment to moment. But again, we have to be paying attention to the place where our life happens to discern what is indigenous to us. The issue for those who earnestly wish to become indigenous is to identify the mental, emotional, and physical foods that are appropriate for them in the same way that indigenous cultures do. We can't simply take the advice of others about what works for them because what works for one will not work for everyone. So what can we do? We can return again and again to the indigenous place, which is our present moment in every moment, to consider the merits of everything we experience on the basis of how free it makes us feel. In a very real way, this will guide us to cultivate the soil, so to speak, and then plant, water, and allow to take root only that which truly sustains us. Like any crop we wish to grow, before planting a new one, it is necessary to prepare the soil by removing past growth, weeds, and restoring nutrients. If we do not, we will find the same things coming up as before. This is especially true when we have become cluttered with thoughts and emotions that are not natural to us in the same way that my stepfather's fears were foreign to me and yet lived in me just the same. For every time I resisted or complied with his belief about being right or safe, I enable discord within myself by making myself wrong and unsafe. Not knowing how to prepare the soil or recognizing the need to, 
we continue to feel mentally, emotionally, and physically uncomfortable by giving life to the same crop of thought and emotion and behavior that has troubled us in the past. And this will continue until we choose to remain present to that which is appropriate for us. Select our seeds of wisdom and allow feelings of nourishment, peace, and freedom to take root and grow. If what we plant doesn't produce the fruits we want, then it isn't right for us. And this is how we become indigenous, by learning how to cultivate the landscape of our present moment. Preparing the soil, then, is one of the most important steps, and it is best achieved by taking proper rest, because doing so is the only way to purify a body of its stored toxins. This is as true of a field that is allowed to lie fallow for a season as it is the human body that abstains from a particular food for a season, a meal, or one or more days. The only difference has to do with what we mean by rest, which is a function that is unique to the type of body in question. For example, when we decide to fast our physical body, normally we think of a food fast. Whenever we participate in this type of fast, the body gets a break from digesting, assimilating, and eliminating, which it interprets as rest. And whenever rest is present, a cleansing cycle must follow. This is a law of nature. During a fast, we may experience different symptoms of purification in the form of hunger, headache, irritability, moodness, delicate emotional states, strange sensations, or noxious odors as different toxins exit the system. Suppose we want to purify the mental body. How would we do this? Some take up chanting, prayer, meditation, contemplation, or any mental practice that has them abstain from their normal patterns of thinking. Subsisting on this restricted diet of thoughts, our mental body gets a break from its habitual patterns of thinking, planning, worrying, complaining, and explaining. What happens next? Our undigested thoughts, opinions, and beliefs float to the surface of the mind, causing the complaint of every person who says, why can't my mind just stop having those thoughts? Why can't I just pray or meditate and be still? While I sympathize with this complaint, my 40 years of spiritual practice tells me that this is necessary so that we may consciously notice, acknowledge, and accept the effect of every belief we have previously mistaken as true, because they can only be transformed in the same way they were first formed, through the mind. As a final example, we already know about emotions being energy in motion, so it should not come as a surprise that the emotional tone of our lives is the net result of all the feelings we have ever ingested, but never digested. This is why we go round and round, feeling the same stuff, like some have that repeating taste after eating raw onion, or wonder why we have not made any progress after all the work we've done. The reason is that every emotion will continue in motion until we notice, acknowledge, and accept and thereby transform it. That is the truth of it, and there are no exceptions. For anyone who has ever undertaken any kind of fast, whether from food, drink, talk, beliefs, drugs, sex, or relationships, we know the purging process can bring uncomfortable cycles of release that can last for months, days, or in my case, many years. Some days we feel really good, others bad, still others really bad, without realizing that many cycles of purification are ongoing on so many levels that it often seems overwhelming. 
But when we choose to be present, not past or future, before anything else and everything else, we begin the most comprehensive fast possible, a fast of the body of time, a time fast, if you will. This is the process that releases everything that before kept us from being fully present. Clearly, at the age of 17, I didn't know my life was heading towards the time when I would engage in an extended time fast. I say this because the instant I exited the serenity and silence of that moment on the bus, my only objective had been to avoid the predicament in which mankind seemed stranded. So for the next 40 years, I ran in the same direction I thought would save me from that fate until the time would come when I could understand that all I wanted was what any of us truly wants, to be free. And even though every single moment of life sought to guide me towards the place that was free of fear, I had no way of knowing that being free necessitated that I fast on the present moment, absent all considerations of past or future. Now, 40 years later, I still find it difficult, not because I have doubts about the virtues of living life guided by the self-arising impulses of each moment. It's just that it can be difficult when living in a world that does not place much value on living without fear. At such times, I take comfort in the knowledge that the path I have been given is one that is well-trodden by others. I say this because it may not be generally understood that being present is a path that many others have taken. But if we look closely, we will find this to be true within many traditions and social practices. For example, no matter where we might travel or the cultures we may visit, whenever people come together to share a meal, somewhere in their culture exists a tradition of acknowledging, receiving, and giving thanks. Some sing, say grace, bow, or sit in silence while others go through detailed rituals in a way of giving gratitude for the bounty received. As a time-honored method that prepares us for what we are about to take into our body, it brings us to the place of the present moment. Why, I wonder, is there no such practice for the thoughts and emotions we regularly consume? Where is the gratitude for this? And isn't it reasonable that doing so would cultivate a state of mind and heart that is the equivalent of giving thanks for the nourishment to be received? As previously stated, I was raised without a specific religious tradition, and for this reason am not well versed in such matters. From my experience, however, I have observed that choosing to listen to the self-arising content of the moment is the best way to not only be who we are, but to actually give thanks. I wonder if this understanding might shed light on the true nature of the directive that is found in many scriptures to pray ceaselessly. Could listening to the present moment be just that? If by this we mean we are to accept with gratitude all the foods that sustain and guide our life, yes, I think so. And listening is the key to becoming indigenous and being who we are. 